Hi, this is Randy Landry, and this is my 134th podcast from Common Sense and Ramblings in America. Today I'm going to do something a little different. Um, I guess every few months or so I get this um, mailing from Hillsdale College. Um, I guess it's a Jewish um, publication. It's called Imprimis. Okay. And um, this is from the August 2022, Volume 51, Number 8th edition. And it's an article written by, of, of all people, um, Harmeet Dillon, who's um, one of the people that does a lot of um, um, talks or whatever, I guess, um, contributions to Fox uh, on TV, Fox Channel 21. The, uh, the national news channel. So, this particular article kind of caught my guy. I usually I just toss it, but sometimes I do have some pretty good little um, pamphlet um, issues or editions. This was the politicization of the Department of Justice, and um, she's from the Dillon Law Group Incorporated. And um, so I'm gonna on today's podcast. I'm going to go ahead and read this article. Um, it's a little bit lengthy. It'll probably take the full time or so. Uh, so without further ado, let me go ahead and start reading. Because uh, I don't know how many of you guys out there actually get this particular publication, but it's not bad. The seal of the U.S. Government of Justice reads, Qui pro domina justia sequitar. Who prosecutes for lady justice? Quote, unquote. Depictions of Lady Justice are as familiar as they are instructive. She stands blindfolded while holding the scales of justice, representing her unyielding devotion to equal justice under the law. Contrary to this ideal, the Department of Justice today appears to be increasingly motivated by partisanship, compounding the problem it has access to the powers of modern surveillance state. As someone passionate about the Constitution of Bill of Rights, I believe there is no higher priority than addressing this danger. The tragic events of 9-11 marked a turning point in our nation's recent civil rights history. First the terrorists attacked us, and then in the name of the national security, we began to attack ourselves. It has become almost cliche to say that we have lived in a surveillance state, but we do. Ever since Congress, on a fully bipartisan basis, enacted the Patriot Act six weeks after the attacks on 9-11, the ever-present eye of the government has been searching for new and creative ways to spy on American citizens. The government has the technology to monitor all of our electronic devices, listen to our cell phones, and read our emails and text messages, all under the auspices of national security. This special law designed for an emergency has become a permanent addition to the government's investigatory toolbox. The unfortunate reality is that the bulk of the actions taken by law enforcement under the Patriot Act have almost nothing to do with combating terrorism. Once rare applications for surveillance warrants to the Ford Intelligence Surveillance Court have multiplied many times in relative peacetime, most of the spying conducted under the Patriot Act is for run-of-the-mill crimes that we've long expected law enforcement to address without special severance authority. Now it is bad enough to have a politically neutral surveillance state controlled by the national security crowd and their DOJ cousins. But take that 
panopticon and put it in the hands of an executive branch willing to weaponize its reams of information against its perceived political enemies. We've got a frightening problem on our hands. Laws such as the Patriot Act were designed to fight the unique problem of terrorism, but they quickly morphed into a mechanism by which the government keeps constant tabs on law-abiding Americans and threatens to disrupt their lives if they dare act contrary to those in power. And it's within this world of omnipotent oversight and control that the U.S. Department of Justice now operates. They have all the tools of the surveillance state at their disposal, and the only thing standing in their way is an independent judiciary willing to enforce our constitutional rights. But we all saw how easy it is to spy on Americans with virtually no judicial oversight from the disgraceful episodes of broad surveillance applications on flimsy and sometimes falsified pretexts against citizens such as Carter Page. Let me discuss three recent examples that illustrate the threats we face from a politicized DOJ. The DOJ raid on Project Veritas journalists, the DOJ raid on Mar-a-Lago, and the DOJ's efforts to undermine election integrity and chill free speech. Project Veritas raid. In July 2021, Attorney General Merrick Garland issued a memo forbidding federal prosecutors from seizing journalists' records. He did this with much fanfare, hot air, and virtue signaling. But even as Mr. Garland was decrying the seizure of journalists' records as a wrong, his department would not let happen, the DOJ was in the midst of a very of a year long campaign spying on Project Veritas, a campaign that involved no fewer than nineteen clandestine subpoenas, orders, and warrants obtained from nine magistrate judges. The secrecy of the spying campaign was maintained through the use of wide ranging gag orders, including at least two that were obtained without notice to the judge overseeing the Project Veritas case. Through the spying campaign, we now know that the DOJ obtained approximately 200,000 Project Veritas emails from Microsoft and countless text messages, and heaven knows what else, from Apple, Google, Uber, and other still unknown companies. Only six months after Mayor Mr. Garland's memo was issued, the DOJ raided the homes of three Project Veritas journalists, seizing 47 electronic devices and how did the world learn about this? Conveniently, someone leaked information about the raids to the New York Times, which Project Veritas happens to be suing. And indeed, the New York Times called Project Veritas for comment as the raids were still in progress. What was a pretext for the raids? In the fall of 2020, confidential sources had approached Project Veritas journalists with a diary and other materials supposedly belonging to Ashley Biden, the president's daughter. The sources said that the journals had been in their possession prior to contacting Project Veritas. The Project Veritas journalists proceeded to investigate whether the materials were authentic and whether the allegations they contained against Joe Biden were true. Ultimately, Project Veritas decided it could not sufficiently verify the allegations and that it would not publish the diary's contents. It then turned the items over to local law enforcement in Florida. The DOJ claims that Ashley Biden's belongings were stolen. Project Veritas was told they weren't, 
but even this is legally irrelevant. In the 2001 case, Barnicki versus Voper, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court held unequivocally that as long as journalists did not commit the alleged theft themselves, they were entitled to receive, investigate, and publish or not publish supposedly stolen materials. In the more recent case, DNC versus Russia Federation, a federal court made it clear that the reporter could even ask for the stolen materials. This is not a crime. It's called journalism. Compare the DOJ's treatment of Project Veritas to the DOJ's inaction earlier this year when a political reporter was given a U.S. Supreme Court draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. The political reporter behaved precisely with his perusal on the document as the Project Veritas reporters had behaved with the diary, except that the political reporter did decide to publish the draft opinion. The different reactions on the part of the DOJ seemed to hinge entirely on whose ox was being gored. But, to repeat, the Garland Justice Department was riffling through the emails and phone messages of the Project Veritas journalists before Project Veritas even knew of Ashley Biden's diary. These documents contained donor information, source communications, including communications from whistleblowers within the federal government, and attorney-client communications. In its actions, the DOJ was not only ignoring court decisions and its own policies, it was violating the Privacy Protection Act, the common law reporter's privilege, and the First and Fourth Amendments to the Constitution. The Project Veritas matter is ongoing, thanks to the DOJ's leaks to the New York Times, which themselves violate federal law. Judge Annalis Torres overruled the DOJ's objections and ordered the appointment of a special master to review the seized materials for various privileges. It's a hollow victory because Project Veritas has to pay tens of thousands of dollars for the privilege so to speak, at being able to protect its own privileged documents. Mar-a-Lago raid. Although I have represented and continue to represent President Trump in several matters, I do not represent him on the matter of the DOJ's raid on his Florida home. Mar-a-Lago. But that raid is significant and worth some attention. Considering first the raid's timing, President Biden's approval ratings have been abysmal, and it is a midterm election year. Bloomberg reports that the DOJ will likely delay charging Trump with anything arising from the raid on his home until after the midterms. The effect of this is to create a cloud of perceived guilt running up to November 8, and use that as a political tool to smear pro-Trump voters and candidates. The DOJ hides behind its long-standing policy of not taking politically portentous actions close to an election, but how could the raid itself be construed as anything but such a portentous action? The President Trump and his lawyers were engaged in a cooperative dialogue with both the DOJ and National Archives representatives on the issue of storing and archiving confidential documents. He went as far as to invite the DOJ to survey the documents he had on his property, and the DOJ seemed to have expressed little urgency in pursuing the matter. This latest episode of G-Men Gone Wild is not all that different from the FBI strategy before and after Trump's election in 2016, when the FBI were weaponized to investigate claims of Russian collusion that ultimately proved to have been made up by Democrat operatives. But more importantly, the raid raises serious constitutional objections. 
The Fourth Amendment provides that the right of the people to be secure in the person's houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Quote, unquote. The American founders were intensely concerned about government intrusions, breaking to the homes of political opponents and depriving them of their possessions, was common practice under the rule of the British king in colonial America. The use of general warrants and writs of assistance by the crown was the ultimate interference with the colonists' right to political and personal autonomy. Such invasions were so pervasive and so universally despised that the founders saw fit to ensure that the Constitution expressly forbids such practices. For over 180 years after the founding, the Supreme Court applied the Fourth Amendment's protections largely to places and things. Unsurprisingly, this meant that dwellings were given a heightened sense of protection against government intrusion. The Supreme Court has reiterated in the 1980 case, Peyton v. New York, that the physical entry of the home is the chief evil against which the wording of the Fourth Amendment is directed, quote-unquote. In addition to where and what receives Fourth Amendment protection is the question of how the government conducts searches and seizures without offending the Constitution. Searches are only permitted if they are reasonable, and in search is generally considered reasonable only when the government first obtains a properly issued warrant. Properly issued means the warrant must describe with specificity the places to be searched and the things to be seized, must be supported by probable cause, and must be issued by a neutral and detached magistrate. Taken together, this is colloquially known as the warrant requirement and it is central to any honest analysis of the Mar-a-Lago raid. At its core, the problem with the FBI's search of President Trump's home is its inconsistency with the letter and the spirit of the Fourth Amendment. The shroud of secrecy surrounding the probable cause affidavit used by the FBI to obtain the warrant prevents the public from judging whether the government had a valid reason for this unprecedented search. Even more, the list of places to be searched and the things to be seized contained in the warrant application comprised a blanket sweep of the former president's entire private residence and offices, targeting any evidence supporting a potential violation of a handful of federal statutes that are the usual suspects when it comes to politicized prosecutions. While this alone doesn't make the warrant effective, the Justice Department's Just Trust Us approach to the support to raid makes it nearly impossible to determine the legitimacy of the government's unprecedented actions. This leads us no choice, leaves us no choice but to speculate. And based on the information publicly available, the DOJ's actions have all the trappings and appearances of a vindictive and politically motivated fishing expedition. As in the Project Veritas case, the judge in Mar-a-Lago case has issued an order appointing a special master. In doing so, the judge pointedly observed that some of the resultant delay the government complains of is caused by the government's cutting corners, suggesting implications that the government abused the warrant process. The election integrity and free speech has been widely reported. The DOJ is currently issuing subpoenas to individuals 
who have dared to question the 2020 election results. This is occurring against the backdrop of the President Biden's vendetta against what he calls ultra-MAGA Republicans. This is the type of behavior you'd expect in a third world dictatorship. Included in the DOJ's crosshairs are those who have participated in the political process as alternate electors, those in Congress who voted against certifying the election results, those who organized or peacefully attended a permitted, permitted rally on the eclipse, the ellipse in Washington, D.C., on January 6, 2021, even if they had nothing to do with the activities of the Capitol on that day, and those who have raised funds from donors with a promise to investigate and challenge election fraud. All those activities have long historical precedents in our country and are protected by the First Amendment. Indeed, it was the Democrats who challenged the presidential election results in 2000, 2004, and 2016. Let's review the evidence. In 2015, House Democrats objected to accounting Florida's electoral votes. Several members of Congress called the 2000 election fraudulent, and Texas Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson vowed that there would be no peace because of the allegedly stolen election. In 2004, the Democrats in Congress forced a vote to recess the joint session of Congress, counting electoral votes in order to debate perceived election irregularities in Ohio. 31 House Democrats voted to reject Ohio's electoral votes and were applauded for doing so by Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, among others. In 2016, several Democrats objected to the certification of Trump electorate's base and overwhelming evidence of the Russian interference in the election. Maryland Representative Jamie Raskin objected to 10 Florida electorate's base on a Florida statute that prohibited state legislatures from being electors. Texas Representative Sheila Jackson Lee proclaimed, if in that voting you have glaring matters that speak of the failure of the electoral system, then it should be challenged. No DOJ action was taken in any of these previous years. What has changed, if not the politicization of the Justice Department? Elections are the engine of our republic. They ensure the peaceful transfer of power and are primary, the primary method for the people to influence their government. And our Constitution's Elections Clause, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, gives states the primary duty of regulating the time, places, and the manner of elections for federal office. The DOJ's role is very limited in this regard. It has the power to administer the Voting Rights Act, a power that was once necessary to push back on Jim Crow laws. But the era of Jim Crow is long gone, and it shouldn't be up to a politicized DOJ to dictate what election integrity looks like. The 2020 election was rampant with reports of irregularities. Some of these reports were more accurate than others, but states were right to take appropriate steps to increase the security of their elections in the wake of such reports. And yet, from its first days, the Biden administration has been bent on waging an intimidation campaign against states attempting to bolster election integrity. Consider Georgia. The midnight ballot dump that pushed Biden ahead of Trump had all the appearances of manipulative ballot stuffing that was followed by days of uncertainty about who won. Reports soon surfaced of massive ballot harvesting, illegal in Georgia, as well as Deep Healy, concerning evidence that Mark Zuckerberg funded nonprofits 
had placed personnel in election operations in blue counties with the effect of decreasing signature matching efforts. Given the backdrop in which the 2020 election took place with new and expansive vote-by-mail procedures, it's not surprising that alarms went off and that many citizens questioned the final vote tally. So rather than allow this scenario to repeat itself in future elections, Georgia's legislature took action, enacting a package of election reform legislation designed to bolster ballot security. President Biden denounced these reforms, which, as many commentators noted, made voting easier than in Biden's home state of Delaware. As Jim Crow 2.0, the DOJ sued Georgia to block the new law and issued two new guidance documents intended to put states, including Georgia, on notice of potential violations of federal election laws. It has used similar tactics in Arizona and Texas. It is not just political activists who are subject to DOJ intimidation. Attorney General Garland recently issued a guidance document prohibiting the DOJ employees from speaking directly to members of Congress. This was plainly in response to at least 14 FBI whistleblowers reaching out to members of Congress, including Ohio Representative Jim Jordan and Iowa Senator Chuck Grisley, about misconduct within the DOJ. Garland's action was highly improper, but it pales in comparison to the intimidation of concerned parents at local school board meetings. On October 4, 2021, Garland issued a memorandum directing the FBI to address threats at local school board meetings. This was in response to a request from the National School Boards Association that the DOJ leverage the Patriot Act and other counterterrorism tools to investigate moms and dads who are voicing their displeasure with school policies at local school board meetings. Despite Garland's sworn testimony denying the issue or use of counterterrorism tools to investigate concerned parents, whistleblower evidence tells a different story. On October 20, 2021, Carlton Peoples, the Deputy Assistant Director for the FBI's Criminal Investigation Division, sent an email directing FBI personnel to use the tag EDU officials for all school board-related investigations. Whistleblowers say that the FBI opened investigations into parents in every region of the country. These included an investigation of a right wing mom based on her participation in a Moms for Liberty group and personal ownership of a gun. Another investigation was opened when a dad was deemed to fit the profile of an insurrectionist after complaining about school mask mandates. It is time to wake up to the danger. On November 11, 1762, King George's men had a warrant when they stormed and raided the home of pamphleteer John Entick. They broke open locked doors, boxes, chests, and drawers, and seized his private papers and books, all because the Crown suspected Entick of fomenting political opposition against the King. If the FBI's raid on Project Veritas journalists' homes or President Trump's home at Mar-a-Lago teaches us anything, it's that. The political oppression of the 18th century remains a threat today, but today, in addition to brutal force, 
our government has the power of the modern surveillance state. As a graduate of the University of Virginia's law school, I would be remiss in speaking about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights without quoting Thomas Jefferson, who wrote, The most sacred of the duties of the government is to do equal and impartial justice to all its citizens, quote-unquote. We must find a way to return our government or Department of Justice to that central principle of American constitutionalism as it carries out its duties in the name of the lady of liberty. And that concludes the reading of this article um, or publication. I think that's pretty important what she wrote. Um, I'm impressed. Um, and it kind of is an eye-opener, wouldn't you say, to what the Department of Justice and the FBI and other government agencies have been doing all this time. Or So... Even in Trump's presidency for the four years, 16, or actually it started in 2017 to 2020, um, there was shenanigans going on. He didn't have control of the government in all these aspects. There was just too many Democrats um, or Obama um, people in office or in these um, positions of power for him to clean house. Um, you know, eight years is a long time for people to get into power and for Trump to try to clean all that out in four years. Um, it's just not possible. And he had to take um, recommendations from a lot of people, people that were, maybe had some hidden agendas about certain personnel who were good. Of course, later on, he found out that they weren't so good. And uh, even replacing the FBI, head of the FBI, um, we still have another one in there that's just as bad. So, what do you do? I mean, you know, I went to work um, a few days ago. Um, actually, it was on a Monday night. And there was four cops sitting outside of my house on the left side. I called my wife to warn her, you know, something's up. Well, it turns out there was a domestic dispute somewhere in the neighborhood and... There was four cop cars there. I don't know what the outcome of that was. But I'm assuming that's what it was because nobody knocked on my wife's door. Thank God. You know, but when I was at work, what the hell? I mean, I do, after all, have a blog that I post. Um, a lot of articles and a lot of anti-Biden uh, and uh, other anti-government actions articles. And um, things that we've done in the past. And I guess you could call them whistleblowing to some extent. Although I don't have the... Um, in on and stuff, but I do have the capability of doing research and looking up stuff and then just go ahead and putting it out there. And I'm not exactly uh, a fan of the Democrats when I write my postings on Facebook either, um, which is why I'm a big shadow banned, even shadow banned by um, Google. But my voice and my word is still getting out there. I just hit another milestone. I'm at 148 countries now in counting that reach are getting um, my material. Um, so that's a lot. You know, I'm, I'm averaging a fair number of views a, a year. It's in the thousands, um, between 20 and 30,000 views on my political blog. That's not 
earth shaking or shattering. I mean, some people get thousands and thousands in, in one day. Matter of fact, um, my Flickr account, I've had uh, several views, several thousand views in one day on my pictures, um, especially when I post some new ones. Um, so it's not a big deal really, but people are, but it's a different thing because um, there's nothing salacious or um, in my articles, um, it's just truth. Um, so in the podcast I do, and I've been doing now for a couple of years now, almost as long as I've been doing the blog, um, it gives people another opportunity to get this information if they don't enjoy reading. All they have to do is listen to me blithe on. And um, in this case, read um, a publication. Uh, that's pretty important in my way of thinking. So, where do we go? Um, we just can't roll over. The election is coming up very quickly. Just a few weeks. Actually, a little bit less than that. So, um, unfortunately, I have to work the next five days. I'm picking up for another fellow nurse. Um, so, I only have two days off this week. And, oh my God, thank you. You know, I've been out without cold water. Uh, this is the one thing. It's kind of totally aside. But, I highly recommend, if you're going out there and looking for a used house, um, especially an older house, just because it's really cool looking, um, or maybe it's on a bigger piece of land, only do so in two cases. If you got really deep pockets, you have lots of money, so that you can do repairs on the house, or you have the capability of doing those repairs yourself, or you have friends or family members that can do those repairs. Otherwise, be prepared for some shit, okay? Now, when the house inspector looked, checked the house out and gave him his thumbs up for it, he said the only the, the house was in great shape and that it um, only needed, um, it'll need some roof work in a couple of years, probably replaced because a 50-year-old um, house, usually typically shingles last 25 years and it had already been, and of course they never, they just did a roof over. They never took the original shingles off. They just put another set of shingles on top of it, which is okay, but not typically the process you go by. That's the lazy man's way. So obviously those shingles were getting time along a tooth there. So he said they were just all ready to go. So I checked on the price because we have two air conditioning units on the roof. It's something that I'm not really keen on doing myself. Um, the shingles, plus I'm getting, starting to get a little older. So I opted for, and they wanted like twenty eighteen thousand dollars to do the freaking roof. Oh my God, no way. Not for a 2,500 square foot house. That's insane. That's absolutely freaking insane. I know there's a lot of work and you got to take all the old shingles off now because now there's two layers and the whole back has to be scraped because it's tarred on because it's a low slope. So it's too low of a slope a gradual slope for um, a shingle, so that'd be tarred on. And I had put more tar on uh, to seal the leaks. So now I decided to buy a polymer coat that's good for five years. And not only um, is it seal the roof and keep the tiles from anymore from flopping off and leaking, it's white, so it's reflective surface now. So now in the summer months, uh, my electric bill has dropped substantially. Uh, because no longer is the back part of the house being 
heat hit by the heat. Another thing is be very careful with the home warranty services. They have all they do these home warranties is just make sure the shit's working. It doesn't matter how well it's working, just that it's working. I noticed this when I rented a house a few years back, um, like six years back, that every damn year the air conditioner had to be worked on. Every freaking year, it didn't matter. I said, what the hell are they doing, these repair guys? But I didn't really care since I, I wasn't the one paying the bill or paying the home warranty. So then I get this house and the home warranty's on it. So I said, I'll just keep it going. It's an older house, you know, yeah. But all the appliances were new, so there really shouldn't have been anything for me to really take care of. Uh, the air conditioners were within five years, so that's not terribly old. But one went down, I had to have the repair, pay them 75 bucks, come in, take a look, only fix it, and there's a leak there, a leak here. And But every freaking year, I was here three years, and they came in. Until the last one, they came in and said, oh, the ductwork has been compromised and blaming me. Basically, it's just, there's like a stainless steel duct with an insulation over it and then a, uh, a, a silver shiny protective coat over that, which has absolutely no nothing to do with the insulation or anything at all, except it was flaking off. They said I needed to replace all the duct work because they could not work on it because it was leaking. Basically, what they had did is they had screwed up the goddamn air conditioner in the back so much, there were so many leaks, that it had burnt the freaking whole motor out. And it was going to cost the uh, warranty a couple grand to refix it. Almost replaced the whole damn unit. Well, they saw that, and they didn't want to take care of it. And, of course, the, um, the company that they have is tied in with them because it's in their best interest to maintain their, um, their contracts. So they go right along with these insurance companies. So now, so I bring in a third-party company in here, another one, it's, and they said the ductwork is fine. Of course, they don't want to put their name on anything, so they wouldn't sign any documents saying that this was the case. All right? And also that the um, warranty service would not have anybody else come in. It's not, not in their best interest. I have to pay for it out of pocket. So I had to pay. Well, actually, it was a free inspection, and they checked it out. And then when I asked them if they would replace the ductwork or just resheathe it, they refused. We said it, it wasn't worthwhile for them to do it. So then when I offered, I asked them, is there anybody that doesn't mind moonlighting once in a while to pick up a few extra bucks when they're off, on their off days? If they could do the work, since I can't do the work, I'm not a licensed electrician or a licensed air conditioning guy or anything like that. And of course, they freaking, they must have contracts with these home warranties because they blackballed me <clears throat> and said they would no, no longer take care of my house. What the hell is that? They said it, it was improper that I asked them if, if their worker or any of their workers would want to pick up some, they don't allow their workers to do moonlighting. Who the hell can say that? You're allowed to do anything on your days off that you want to as long as it's legal. And there was nothing illegal about what I asked them to do. So now I've got three portable units in the back of my house with little ducks going out the windows to cool it during the summer months. Because I can't afford to replace the whole freaking air conditioning. It's like $4,000. I've already done this once before in another house. I'm not doing it again. Because all I have to do is get through seven more years in this damn house 
until I can retire and get the fuck out of the United States and go live in the Philippines um, where my wife used to live. Because I can't afford to retire here now. Every year, in the last two years, I'm going deeper and deeper in debt. You know, part of it's my own. I mean, my car got totaled, so I had to buy another one, so I got a car loan. I couldn't lose weight thanks to all the food we eat in this country that's crap. And because of I have a irritable bowel, so I had to, and plus my insurance company through work sucks, so I had to borrow money for that. Now I got to borrow money to pay for the plumbing because my pipes, as I was saying, the reason why I'm going on this is that my house is 50 years old, galvanized steel pipes, okay, that are running through the, so they started springing leaks. So it cost me $9,000 to do a reroute for all the plumbing, which to me was like extremely absorbent. Because I sat down and figured out their expenses. <coughs> I said, even, and it took them like a day and a half. I said, even if it cost them $1,000 of materials, which it probably did not, to replace the reroute, because it's all this plastic rolled tubing and a few uh, copper fittings, and $1,500 in labor, which it did not, and I pay their guys that much money for two days, two guys for one full day, and then part of another day, um, one guy worked half a day and the other one worked a quarter of a day. So $1,500 of labor, so that's $2,500, and I paid $8,800, and they're complaining about having to do a free, free sheetrock patches, which maybe another four or 500 bucks. So even if it cost them three grand to do the work, that's $5,800 in profit that that company made in a week, a day and a half of work. Really? What the hell? So, I'm not happy about this, but now I'm further and further in debt. So now I'm stuck. And I was to a point in my life where I was down to just working three days a week. Three 12-hour days, 36 hours, which is considered full-time in the medical field. Now I'm working 40. I'm back to the fucking four days a week, 48 hours. I just cannot get out from underneath this so I can try to pay off the debt. At one point in time, I thought I could pay off my mortgage early, but now I've got $60,000 in fucking debt that I've got to pay off before I can even start concentrating back on getting the mortgage. So I will never get this mortgage paid off before I retire. Never in this lifetime will I be able to do it. So not that I'm crying over spilled milk, but yeah, I am crying over spilled milk. It just seems like <coughs> there's always something going on to try to keep the, the middle class people down. And I tried to buy a piece of land so I could build a house on it. That's impossible to do. It's because you want to buy a piece of land. Okay, when you buy a house, preset house, you only have to put down like 10% down or some places 0% down. When I wanted to buy a piece of land, they wanted 50% down. What was their reason for that 50% down on a piece of land? What are they afraid? What's going to happen? What am I going to do to the land? If I if I can't make the loan, then all they have to do is just take the goddamn land. There's no harm, no foul. They didn't lose a penny. The land value didn't go down. They needed 50%. Then I wanted to put a modular home on it. They wanted 50% down for the modular home loan. So it just seems like, and then I said, okay, I'm going to put a storage unit on the house and live in that until I can have my house built. Well, they said, no, you can't do that. You can't. I said, this is my fucking land. I'll live in whatever the hell I want to live in. 
but I got but that point I got so so pissed off at everybody that I said fuck it I'll just buy a regular house again they don't want people to buy land and build their own houses they just don't want it because it takes money away from other it takes money away from the banks because they don't get their mortgage because if you build your own house you're doing it on the cheap on the sly basically so it's just uh, it's amazing what's what's going on in this country the corruption and the good old boy network it's just it's amazing so I can understand what she's saying Harmeet um, in that way it just beat the shit out of you beat the shit out of you until you just give up but you know what I've never given up a goddamn day in my life I've always set my mind to it I've always done it I just finished reading writing um, let's see here 11, 12, 13, 14. I just finished writing my 14th book in less than two years. I think that's some kind of goddamn record. Granted, uh, two of the sets were uh, multi-volume. I wrote a book on saving the world. That's two volume. And I wrote a book on uh, the world of photography, which is four volumes. But it's still 14 books that I've written. And <clears throat> I'm going to be starting in the next few months um, my first fiction, which is my mind is going to be a trilogy. I don't know if it will actually come out to three books. It may only be one. But I'm writing it with the thought of th it may take three books to do it. So, um, and it's going to address some issues with um, slavery in the United States. Um, child trafficking and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's kind of appropriate, uh, appropriate and pertinent. And um, also immigration laws and stuff so it's going to deal with a lot of that stuff and um the safety in our inner cities with for children so and crime so it's going to be it's going to be kind of like um even though it's a fictional work it's going to have a lot of um non-fictional stuff in it issues that's going to be dealing with so i think it might be pretty good um at least it sounds okay Alright guys, I've ranted a raid and forced you to listen. Well, now you're not being forced to listen to my so you just, just don't look at it. Don't read it. Don't, don't listen to it at all. But like our election is coming up close. Our midterms. Um, I've never ever voted in a midterm election in my entire life. But I'm going to do it this time. Because we need to get those effing Democrats out of office. We cannot continue not to mention, am I further in debt? I'm even further in debt because now my money is making, I'm, I'm earning less money, even though I got raised. I'm earning less money because the price of everything has gone up so much. So I have any, can't even go on a goddamn trip. I will not go on a trip at all this year, period, because I got to pay, and, and all probably all of next year as well, until I can get my bills caught up. I can't live with this debt over my hanging over my head. <coughs> and now my wife needs surgery too. And thanks to the insurance, I'm going to have to pay out of pocket. So I've been trying to work extra to put money away. So I have a little nest egg to cover the expenses for that. So, um, yeah, wonderful. Oh, well. All right, guys, take care. Be safe. Um, and just vote your asses off. Get rid of those Democrats. All right, take care. Out.